0: Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to The Astrology Podcast. Today is Friday, July 24th, 2020, starting at 4.11 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and I believe this is going to be the 264th episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Benjamin Dykes about the origins of the concept of detriment in the Hellenistic and medieval astrological traditions. Uh, So hey, Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yes, you're back again already. We, our last episode a couple of months ago, two or three months ago, was on the origins of the concept of exaltation. So it's actually kind of fitting that we're doing um, what is accidentally a follow-up to that with the origins of the concept of detriment.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, soon we'll hopefully uh, have the occasion to uh, do an episode on Abu
0: Mushar's great introduction, which is almost ready too. Yeah, so that's what you're finishing right now. That's your next yeah. big translation hmm Excellent. All right. Um, well, so in order to frame, framing this episode is a little tricky because um, it's tied into this mysterious issue that I noticed years ago and I spent a number of years working on, which is that the in the later astrological tradition, like in the late medieval and early Renaissance traditions, there was the concept of a planet being in its domicile, And then uh, the concept of a planet being in its exaltation, and then there were the signs opposing that, which are the signs known as a planet's fall, which is opposite to its exaltation, and a planet's detriment, which in the Renaissance tradition was said to be the sign opposite to a planet's domicile and these were seen as either positions that were somehow positive or auspicious if a planet was in its domicile or exaltation or somehow inauspicious or negative or problematic if a planet was in its fall or detriment and that's pretty well established by the late medieval and renaissance traditions but it's not something um that's well established in the hellenistic tradition they'll say they'll define domicile they'll define exaltation and they'll define fall but then, for some reason, they won't mention the concept of detriment, and this was kind of a mysterious thing for a number of years and I know even you mentioned this in the introduction to one of your early translations of Saul and Masha Allah in two thousand eight, where you noted that there was some continuation of this in the medieval tradition where they still weren't referring to the concept of detriment as frequently as you you might expect right
1: yeah, it wasn't as frequent and it did not seem as dire uh Uh, But and also oddly enough, not quite as rich as fall. Uh, They were very interested in fall, but mentions of detriment all by itself were much more rare. And sometimes they would just be uh, maybe heaped in with a list of bad kind of conditions. So I I noticed that there there was an asymmetry with how they were treating these when by the time of you know William Lilly and, and later Renaissance, detriment was just part of the package um unquestioned.
0: Right. Um, and so this is an issue for me as well. It was something I struggled with in the Hellenistic texts because we have lots of we have a handful of introductory manuals, and it's really notable to see them having a chapter where they talk about domicile and what that means, and having a chapter where they talk about exaltation and then fall, and then they just move on with the rest of the text and they don't define any other concept. But then what happens, and that's true for most of the Hellenistic authors from let's say the first century Writing in Greek and Latin all the way through until about the fifth or sixth century. But then all of a sudden, you get to the end of the Hellenistic tradition with the last or one of the last great Hellenistic astrologers known as Rhetorius of Egypt. And then all of a sudden, the concept is suddenly there. And he has a chapter where he's defining the concept that later became known as detriment, as well as saying that that's a problematic uh, factor for planets when they fall in that sign opposite their domicile so it's just like there all of a sudden in rhetorius and to me it left this question for a number of years of either a this was a new development that only happened later in the hellenistic tradition and that's why it shows up in rhetorius suddenly or b the second option was that rhetorius was simply articulating something that was implicit or was used in earlier authors even if it wasn't usually explicitly defined for some reason. And those are sort of the two options that I struggled with for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So eventually, by the time I wrote my book, I mean, I, I taught it. I was ambiguous about the ambivalent about the issue for a number of years. And that's how I taught it in my course on Hellenistic astrology for a number of years, and like outlined this issue to people and said, I wasn't really sure what direction to go on this. By the time I wrote my book, um, I found enough references not just to the concept in Rhetorius, but also in a few other Hellenistic authors that I figured that Rhetorius wasn't just inventing the concept out of nowhere, but he must have been drawing on some earlier astrological tradition where this was used in the Hellenistic tradition, even if it wasn't very well formalized into a specific definition or concept. So for me, in my section on this in my book Hellenistic Astrology, I outline the issue, but then say it was probably a concept that existed earlier, and it certainly did by the late Hellenistic tradition. So the focus became on picking a term to use to refer to it, because unfortunately, the tricky issue in Rhetorius is that he uses the Greek term enantioma to refer to the concept that we know as detriment, but that term just means um, opposition. And the problem with this is that the Hellenistic authors used Another word they called the aspect of the opposition typically a diameter using geometrical language for it. But this word opposition later came to be used by most Western astrologers as the word for the aspect. So I in my book struggled with introducing a different concept to refer to this term in the Hellenistic tradition, and I suggested um, adversity and exile. And then later I suggested the term antithesis, which Um, I thought I just discovered last year in 2019, but it turns out I recorded a podcast, podcast number 44 of the astrology podcast. I mentioned in passing that I was playing with that as a possible term and I must have forgotten about it by the time I wrote my book. So for me, this was kind of a settled issue at that point. Um, But then recently on Twitter, somebody linked to an article by a, a former student of mine who took my Hellenistic course 10 years ago when I was still ambivalent about detriment. And his name is Anthony, and he writes the website sevenstarsastrology.com. And it's a really good, really detailed uh, website for a bunch of articles on Hellenistic astrology and different investigations of it from both a conceptual and a practical standpoint. So he wrote a long article, which you can find at sevenstarsastrology.com slash detriment, where he primarily tried to do like a survey and show how many Hellenistic authors have the opportunity to mention detriment and then just don't. Like the fact that it's never mentioned by Ptolemy, it's never mentioned by Firmicus Maternus and other authors. And it's an extremely long, I think almost like 100-page article if you print it out as a PDF as I did. And um, he's somewhat critical and he pushes back against my statements in my book that the, the concept must have existed prior to Rhetorius and he calls into question some of the citations that I um, found to sort of back up that argument or that position. And he argues that the concept didn't exist in the earlier Hellenistic tradition and therefore isn't uh, a valid concept in astrology. So um, that kind of prompted me to do what I should have done a while ago, which is go back and do a much more detailed uh, survey of all of the Hellenistic references to the concept of detriment over the course of the past week with Levant Laszlo, who's doing the Horai translation project through his page on Patreon, and he's translating a bunch of Greek texts. And we were able to find a bunch of other references to detriment in the Hellenistic tradition and reconstruct how it actually developed. And when I talked to you about this, you said that you had actually done a number of uh, found a number of additional references and done a lot of additional research. On the medieval traditions since your initial findings in 2008, right?
1: Yeah, and uh, one of the things that I found, which I'm guessing you did in uh, with um, Levante Laszlo, is um, looking for those words that begin with enantio, the, the which you discovered was the special Greek term that referred to being the opposite of your domicile, and I did. I found that very same kind of thing, specialized vocabulary, in the Arabic. So yeah, I was able to find interesting references that sometimes are based on ancient texts, sometimes come from them, but a little bit has been added to them. Um, but yeah, there's lots of references um, to detriment. So I have, I have my own ideas about what might have happened, and we're going to talk about that. But I still stand by my view that there's an asymmetry in how they were treating these. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were not treating detriment as the opposite of domicile in this as a as a as a, as a, a pre-given set of dignities and counter dignities mm-hmm. um, that they would just you know teach straightforwardly. Um, In the same way that they would do exile or uh, sorry, exaltation and fall. Even though by the time you get to Saul's, you know, Saul's introduction and his books, he does mention detriment right along with the others. Mm -hmm. But it seems to have been something that happened in those middle centuries, making it more official.
0: Yeah. And and I think one of the things that's important is approaching it not with the preconceived notion that of what we're looking for is going to look exactly like what the later Renaissance astrologers or the late medieval astrologers mm-hmm. were doing when they conceptualized detriment, but instead just looking to see how the concept developed on its own sort of natu- organically. And I think when you do that, you see a natural progression that provides some interesting insight into what the conceptualization was. And it was coming from things like the aspect that a planet has with its domicile and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a
1: lots lots that we can uh look at to see how this became how this became official or um you know what what we think happened.
0: Yeah. All right. So one of the things I want to do is I want to go through some of the passages that Levant, Laszlo, and I found over the course of the past week, um, because I think this right away will start to show what happened and will start to um, ex- just get rid of basically the idea, or really challenge the idea that this wasn't a concept that was used in other Hellenistic authors. And in fact, I think you can trace it back to Dorotheus and Valens, and those are probably two of the influential authors that Rhetorius was drawing on when he eventually formalized the concept in the seventh century, in the sixth or seventh century. So I'm going to share. I have, my a
1: Valen- I have a Valens reference to um. Um, that I'm not sure is in your list, so
0: we'll have to see. Okay. Um, So uh, this is a document I'm going to share. I'm going to share it on the screen for the video version, but this is also going to be something I link to. I'll put a PDF of it up because I want to research, release this research publicly, so I'll put it in the description page for this episode on the Astrology Podcast website, as well as um, probably in a link below the YouTube video for the video version of this but it's a collection of passages that Levant and I found in the Hellenistic tradition arranged chronologically. And the earliest references we're able to find, and unfortunately, a lot of these don't survive in the Arabic version of Dorotheus, which has a bunch of things missing and is, is corrupted but still contains a lot of Dorotheus. But we were able to find some references where Dorotheus Um, which likely go back to Dorotheus that are being paraphrased or quoted in later Hellenistic astrologers. So the first one is in a collection of texts um, attributed to Anubio, uh, where he's describing the mutual configurations between the planets. And it says, in general, every star being diametrical to his own domicile himself diminishes everything that he promises. So this is like an early reference. And it's interesting that it's focusing on the idea of the planet being opposite to its own sign or having an opposition to its own sign. And this is thought to be um, Anubio paraphrasing a line from Dorotheus. So elsewhere in Hephaestia, when he talks about annual perfections, um, he basically paraphrases the chapter on perfections from Dorotheus. And at one point in there, there is a similar reference that says, Um, that when the stars are in opposition to their own domiciles, they are corrupted. So there's been some argument and some question, for example, in Anthony's article about whether this is a clear reference to the concept of detriment or something like it, or whether this is just referring to like a transit um, sort of reference or something like that because it occurs within the context of a discussion about annual perfections and solar returns. But I think when you analyze the Full passage where I have Schmidt's translation here that it's pretty clear that he's analyzing the condition of the Lord of the Year or the perfected Lord of the Year, which is the domicile Lord of the sign that the perfection has come to. And in the sentence before that, it says that the stars occupying their own thrones rejoice even if they should be under the beams. The benefics increase the good things and the destroyers are changed over in the direction of beneficence." And then immediately in the following sentence, it says that when stars are in opposition to their own domiciles, they are corrupted. So to me, clearly, this is like contrasting planets in their thrones, which is typically usually a reference to planets being in their domiciles or their exaltations and contrasting that with the concept of being opposite to their domiciles as a potential reference to the concept of detriment or what we know as detriment at least. Later in the paragraph, it goes on and it starts giving delineations about the planet being in another's domicile, of contrasting a planet being in its own domicile being good and being the best case scenario versus if a planet's in another planet's domicile, that potentially being problematic, which again, I think sort of reinforces things. Um, Elsewhere in Hephaestio, in Book 3 of Hephaestio. He starts paraphrasing some rules for from Dorotheus again in a subsection on interpreting the lot of fortune. Um, and the line in Hephaistio says, when the lot of fortune falls in the third sign from the hour marker and the lord of the sign opposes it, one must see that the hatred and dis- disagreement with friends is thereby indicated. So this notion that um, if the third place The third house signifies friendship. Then, if the ruler of the third house is in the sign opposite to that, that it sort of inverts the signification, and it indicates hatred and disagreement amongst friends, or something like that.
1: The lord, the lord of the lot is is in the sign opposite the lot, or contrary to the lot, and he's using again that, that some version of the word of that prefix enantio. Uh, which means an op uh, contra- some kind of conflict or
0: contrariness. Yeah, contrariety is one of the other definitions. I think mm-hmm. that that Schmidt used for it, which is a good transition. Or um, I was using that word antithesis, the idea of it being antithetical mm-hmm. in some way. Like if you have your house signification, and that's the the thesis or like the foundation or basis of signifying something, then what is the antithesis of that? And you'll find it in the sign opposing it. And so it's not and so they're not so the the Greek does
1: not say that it's diametrical to it which is the aspect term instead it's using a special word of of contrarity and opposition that makes specific reference to the things it's opposite to.
0: Yeah, and that's something so this term enantioma in rhetorius becomes the special keyword that he starts using to refer to detriment and defining Mm. it very specifically in that way in the 7th century, and that's his keyword for for detriment. So when we see it in earlier Hellenistic authors, they do seem to have a tendency sometimes to use that special keyword in antioma to refer to the concept of detriment as well. Mm. So it's not clear if it was as formalized as it became in the time of Rhetorius because sometimes they'll still alternate and they'll still use the term opposition. Or enantioma, but it does seem like there's a tendency to use enantioma more when they're referring to this condition. So it does essentially become like their equivalent of the term detriment to some extent. But note that it's, it's still very much connected to and still tied in with the notion of the planet being opposite or aspecting its domicile through an opposition in some way. So mm-hmm. that gives us some clues right away that part of how the concept of detriment developed initially Was just through the notion of a planet being opposite to its domicile. And especially when the planet is ruling a sign, what happens if it's um, supposed to be carrying out the significations of that sign or that house, but then it finds itself as far removed from that sign as it possibly can and configured to it through the aspect of opposition, which was said to be a, a tense or adversative aspect.
1: Yeah and this is I think we'll we'll continue to see this uh in the arabic material too because there are ref- there are references to this where you know we want a planet to to aspect or look at its own sign because that helps it manage the affairs of its sign.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well what's wrong with an opposition? That looks at the sign except that there's something really different that happens when you are in the opposite sign. Uh, to the one that you rule, different th- things come into play due to factors that we'll 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 talk about so it's you can see the sign, but being diametrical to the sign puts you in a different kind of condition and an antioma,
0: yeah, and I think so part of that is just coming from like you said, um, we have that long passage in Firmicus that's always quoted and thought of where he explains the Hellenistic conceptualization of like a planet in its own sign is like a person living at home, whereas a planet um, who's in a sign that it doesn't rule is like a planet who's living away from home, who's staying with somebody else and then has to rely on the person who hosts that sign for support. Um, and by extension, then the Hellenistic astrologers had a common interpretive principle that it's good for the ruler of a sign to be able to aspect or to see its sign so that it can support any guest planets that are staying in it. Mm-hmm. So that means normally any aspect is positive, whether it's a sextile or a square or a trine, but you get you run into a little issue when you get to the opposition because the opposition was conceptualized as the most challenging of the the four or five aspects so they mm-hmm. must have started running into an issue of what do you do in that case is the opposition still helpful or is there some challenge or some some problematic conditions that come along with that
1: yeah and that that'll be uh, and that comes through i think in uh at least in one of the um one of the quotes from abu mashar which brings that out you know what happens if you are in A configuration that's hostile to the very thing you're supposed to be taking care of, right? And people and people live in those in that kind of state. Also, what happens if you're hostile to the things that you're supposed to be taking care of?
0: So, yeah, hostile. I like that's a good term because it's a common term for the opposition. Is the notion notion of hostility or adversity? Um, Like here's Porphyry's basic definition from I think chapter seven of Porphyry translated by Levant about the nature of the different aspects. And it says that um, the configuration by trigon, which is the trine, is sympathetic and beneficial. And when a malefic is involved, it is less harmful. The tetragonal or the square configuration is unpleasant and inharmonious and capable of causing distress when a malefic is involved. And the diametrical configuration is adversative, but it is even more pernicious when a malefic is involved. So we have this notion of oppositions being like a challenging aspect and therefore that's starting to be problematic if a planet as the ruler of its sign is configured to its own sign through that aspect. All right, so let's go back to the quotes. Um, So that's Hephaistio probably paraphrasing Dorotheus. Um, There's a similar paraphrase of, again, probably Dorotheus in the text of Palkus. Who was a later compiler? It says, if it the the lord of the third place is in opposition, he will have enmity for friendship. And then again, if the lot of fortune falls in the third sign and its lord is in opposition, he will have enmity for friendship. So it's just this notion that the the lord of a house um, opposing its house brings about the opposite of what the house is supposed to signify in some way. So those are some of the references that make me think that this does in fact go back to Dorotheus as a sort of condition, as an outgrowth of not just the aspect, but also just the rulers of the houses and what happens when they oppose their own house. And we actually find um, a bunch of passages that are very similar in Valens. And I think this is overlooked in the survey that we were talking about earlier where it was stated that Valens didn't refer to detriment, but in fact, all throughout Book 2, there are several different references including some example charts. So in Book 2, Valens has a section on interpreting the placements of the Lot of Fortune and the Lot of Spirit. And at one point, he says, likewise, if the ruler of the Lot of Spirit is in opposition to this place to the place of the Lot of Spirit or the sign of the Lot of Spirit, it indicates men who reside abroad and become distressed. So that's from Riley's translation and Schmidt translated it very similarly. He says, similarly, if the ruler of Spirit should be opposite to this place, it foretells those who dwell in a foreign land and undergo troubles. So, Again, the idea of the lord of the lot opposing its sign being problematic in some way. And here we start to get some significations that become important later where in this case it talks about um, living in a foreign land and undergoing troubles or being distressed. Um, And I think that that notion of being distressed is probably coming from the idea that this is the ruler of the lot of spirit, which is supposed to represent a person's um, mental state. And if it's supposed to indicate one's mental state, if it's well-placed, then it would indicate auspicious or positive things for the mental state. But if it's opposite to its sign, it's going to indicate some sort of tension there with the mental mental state, which they delineate as being distressed in some way. So this starts to bring in some of the traveling-type significations, which I know come up later in the medieval tradition as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so next, a few chapters later in Valens, chapter twenty-three, he's interpreting the lot of acquisition, um, and he says, or, or I should say, the place of acquisition, which is the eleventh place relative to the lot of fortune, and it says, if the ruler of, or when the lord of the acquisition is opposed to the place of acquisition, it makes the property void. So the place of acquisition is the eleventh place in Valens. The eleventh place relative to fortune, and Valens has a whole chapter about how this indicates how the native will acquire wealth and property. And he says that if the ruler of the eleventh place relative to fortune is opposite to its own sign, then it will invert things, and it will indicate um, a loss or a uselessness in terms of wealth and and acquisition. So that's pretty straightforward. Um, in chapter two, book two, chapter 24, it says, if the lot concerning debt should fall amiss or if its lord should fall on squares or diameters with it, it makes the nativities debt ridden. Um, so this isn't as clear of an example, but it's more showing Heather paying attention to differences between the quality of the aspect that a lot has with its lord and that having qualitative differences in the prediction of the outcome. Um, Elsewhere in chapter 30 of Book 2, Valens has a section on travel that he excerpts and he sort of paraphrases from an earlier author named Abraham. And this is actually the first time that Valens um, introduces the technique called zodiac releasing. So within that context at one point, he says, when again, the lords of the signs having the times or the division, so the zodiac releasing periods, should happen to be in aversion to the signs or opposed to them, the signs provide stays away from home. If the lord of the sign were where the times are, so the current uh, time lord period should be opposed to it, it causes either moves or being away from home." So again, he's um, he's doing two things. One, he's associating a planet being opposite to its sign with the potential for travel. And secondarily, he's starting to group, and this is something we'll see in the other authors later, he's starting to group the opposition together with the concept of aversion or not having any aspect with one's sign. And I think this is a change that happens at one point in the Hellenistic tradition where they thought it was good for a planet to be configured to its domicile, and it was bad for a planet to be in aversion or have none of the major Ptolemaic aspects with its domicile. But at a certain point, they started thinking that the opposition was so difficult that it was practically just like an aversion rather than being an aspect with the domicile Ooh. itself.
2: Ooh.
0: And that may have been part of the, the development. All right, so back to the quotes. Um, finally, there's a chapter in Book 2 of Valens, which is chapter 41. And it's his chapter where he gives indications for a potential for violent death of the native. And he actually has a bunch of example charts in this chapter, but this ends up being his primary discussion where he starts talking about the concept of a planet being opposed to its sign. And at one point at the end of the chapter, I think Valens realized that he had talked about this concept a lot without defining it. So at the end of the chapter, you actually see him stop and define it formally. So before we get there, towards the beginning of the chapter, he says at one point, "...whence the all-blessed nativities are not allotted good fortune all the way to the end, but rather when the ruler of a star for a certain matter should fall amiss or else should be opposed, it will furnish misfortune." So again, he's grouping when the the ruler of of a place is in aversion to its sign or even is opposing its sign, Uh, together as being a negative indication. So then he goes in and he starts um, citing chart examples for violent death. And in at least two of these examples in this chapter, he mentions planets being opposed to their domiciles as being negative indications. So here's one chart example, Um, I'll read it through from Schmidt's translation. It says, in this example, the Sun is in the Sun, Hermes, Aphrodite are in Pisces. Cronos is in Virgo, Jupiter is in Scorpio, Mars is in Taurus, the Moon in Sagittarius, and the horoscopos or the hour marker or Ascendant is in Leo. The lot of fortune is in Taurus. He says, Mars holding sway over the lot of spirit was upon Taurus and opposed. And so this is important so he's he's looking at the lot of spirit here he says it's in Scorpio however the ruler of the lot of spirit is in Taurus and therefore is opposed and I believe he uses the term enantioma here so he's using what became rhetorius's special keyword for detriment later here in a technical context to say that there's something challenging about this placement because it's opposite to its sign Do you happen
1: to know in the Greek grammar when you mm. and uh Levente have looked at this I notice that you say it doesn't say and he opposed it. Uh because if it said he opposed it namely Scorpio that would sound more like, um, like an, aspect. an aspect. Is that word is the is the verbal form of that enantioma here? Is it means something to be to be in uh an oppositional state because Greek has that ability to talk about your about yourself you mm-hmm. know, in, in a way like that. Um, so it, does it mean that it is in, an, in a kind of conflicted or oppositional state? Or is it a straightforward verbal form meaning, and he opposed it? Um, I, mean, I don't I, know the answer.
0: I mean, I think if it's it's in Antiotheus uh, is the Greek that Levant bon put in and then later, Valens uses the same term to refer to another planet and he says, in antiothe. So those are the two forms that it's in. because um, I think Schmidt is was always such a stickler for grammar that was that it was in if it was in the form of and it opposed it, then he would have put that. But instead the fact that Schmidt translated as and opposed, um, it means it's it's the other one. Mm. So um Okay, so Valens says the lot of fortune was in Taurus. Mars holding sway over spirit was upon Taurus and opposed. So another way you could translate then is, is like and is in the place of its contrariety, or and detrimented, or and um, you know basically the equivalent of what later became in, detriment.
1: In, in contrariety, maybe. Yeah, in, contra- like
0: in contrariety. Um, so then he goes on. He says the deadly place was in Sagittarius. And for Valens, that's the eighth whole sign house relative to the lot of fortune. So the lot of fortune's in Taurus. So then the eighth from fortune is Sagittarius. So he says the moon lying upon it, being in Sagittarius, has Saturn in superior position to it, while Saturn is in the sign of the whole moon. And then finally, the last thing that he brings into account here is an indication for violent death is he says similarly also Hermes, which is Mercury, the lord of the whole Moon, which is the prenatal lunation, was opposed. Um, and then he says such a one had his throat cut. So again, he doesn't just cite like one example of you know what we know as detriment here, but he cites two of them. And the second one is that Mercury is the ruler of the prenatal lunation, and the pre- prenatal lunation falls in virgo and the ruler of that is mercury which falls in pisces the sign opposite to that so two references there later he gives another example chart that's similar um so this one has scorpio rising with mars in taurus and at one point he says so he delineates like the three different things that are supposed to be indications of violent death he says the Lord um he says the lot of fortune was in Sagittarius, the Lord uh what which is Jupiter, was with Mars in the descendant in the seventh place, then he says the deadly place, which is the eighth from fortune, was in cancer, Saturn, the Lord of the prenatal whole moon, was in aversion, and then finally he says, and Mars was also opposed to its own house, such a one fought with wild animals and he's implying like died as a result of fighting with wild animals. Or in Riley's translation, he translates it as he was thrown to the lions. So again, taking and I'm assuming that he's pointing to Mars being opposed to its domicile as being a negative indication for vitality, because in this chart it has Scorpio rising, so Mars is actually the ruler of the Ascendant. So Valens seems to like recognize that he's like using a concept here that he hasn't defined. So at the end of this chapter, at the end of Book 2, Chapter 41, he goes on this long digression where he starts talking about the nature of quote-unquote oppositions. And he says at one point in Riley's translation, the configuration of op- opposition can be interpreted in two ways. One way when a star in the Ascendant is in opposition to another, The second when a star is in opposition to its own house, triangle, or exaltation. So right there, that's a formal definition of the concept of detriment. Um, And he groups it together with the same concept of fall by saying that you have exaltation and the planet, planet opposite to that is referring or implying to the position of fall. And then next to that, he refers to a planet being in its own domicile and what happens when a planet is opposite to that as being the opposition? So he's explicitly um, distinguishing
1: uh, an aspect from a relationship, from an opposing relationship to a dignity.
0: Yeah. And because he realizes that he doesn't really have a separate term for it or it's not very well distinguished. So he's being clear that sometimes when I say opposition, and he uses the term, interestingly, he actually uses the term diameter here. He says sometimes we're referring to the aspect when two planets are in aspect by opposition to each other. But he's saying but sometimes when we use this term, we're talking about a planet being in opposition to its domicile. Now, that's interesting that he adds the triplicity
1: there because that's something that um, is in Hephaestion Book 3. Where he says when the sun is in, I think he says it's, it's bad when the sun is in airy signs, because in airy signs, all of the airy signs are opposed to fiery signs. Mm. And the fiery triplicity is his triplicity. So Valens couldn't have been the only one who said it was also bad to be opposite. Uh, um, one of the signs of, of your triplicity. So that's interesting that that's also in Valens.
0: Yeah, and you know one thing that's interesting. I've been thinking about because I was trying to understand more of why, let's say, why if some Hellenistic astrologers like Valens and Dorotheus and Rhetorius recognize this concept, why other Hellenistic astrologers maybe wouldn't have or didn't recognize this concept? If it's true that others didn't, and you actually kind of have a similar parallel where which I've talked about before and which which we explored with the um. The discovery about the origins of how the elements came to be assigned to the triplicities and how some Hellenistic astrologers applied the four elements of Earth and air and fire and water to the signs of the zodiac, but some Hellenistic astrologers like Ptolemy didn't. And um, the astrologers who did were like Dorotheus potentially, definitely Valens, and Rhetorius did apply the four elements to the signs of the zodiac through the triplicities, Um, But one of the issues with that and the argument that I made at the time that the reason why somebody like Ptolemy would would omit that is because it followed the stoic rationales for attributing the qualities to the signs of the zodiac which made fire signs hot and air signs cold and put those signs in opposition to each other in the zodiac so that fire signs are always opposed by air signs and therefore they have diametrically opposite qualities of hot and cold which are mm-hmm. adversarial or contrary to each other. And similarly, the water signs are conceptualized as being wet and the Earth signs are conceptualized as being dry, so therefore they're diametrically opposed qualities. Um, I could see how this could be another potentially underlying factor that could have helped to helped contribute to the, the development of the idea of detriment and of opposing signs having these contrary or adversarial or cancelling out qualities, especially when the lord of one sign is in the opposite sign. Um, And also potentially, Uh maybe why some some authors like Valens could have recognized this concept, whereas somebody like Ptolemy who didn't use the elements maybe was less inclined to.
1: So that, for example, Venus rules Libra, now, if she's in Aries, uh, we would say she's in detriment, or she's in the, in an anti in antioma to mm-hmm. Libra. But we could say also that that is that is also a bad thing if you're using the Stoic uh, attributions of the elements, because as an airy sign, uh, because Libra is an airy sign, and Aries is. A fiery sign, and those are opposed qualities. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that she's opposing her own sign, she's now in a sign of opposed qualities.
0: Yeah, and this came up and I almost recorded an episode last week because there's been a lot of interesting discussion about this this year about just modern contemporary astrologers who are practicing Hellenistic astrology and adopting traditional techniques, but then Trying to adapt and reconceptualize, or at least understand some of these traditional context uh, concepts within a modern context, and so there was some discussion earlier this year on Twitter and Instagram under the hashtag of "Dignity Babes." Of they were writing, there's a group of astrologers that were writing different articles and talking about how to conceptualize it in some ways, such as through ideas of um, self autonomy versus the opposite of that. And when a planet is in its domicile having self-autonomy versus what happens when you are in the opposite situation from that and your autonomy is somehow taken away from you in some way or you are not fully in control of your own environment, let's say, Mm -hmm. and understanding uh, dignity and debility in that way. Another article that I read recently by an astrologer named um, Alice Sparkly Cat that I referred to was titled uh, Decolonizing Essential Dignities. And one of the things that they pointed out and argued was that um, they they didn't like the analogy that people were sometimes making of planets when they were away from their domicile as just being like on a trip or on a vacation. Because they said, especially when a planet is opposite to its domicile, and it's in like an alien land that that is an extremely uncomfortable position to be on to be in when you're actually the outsider. And they made analogies of like let's say a person who is a minority in some sense compared to the dominant or sort of established group that they find themselves in, and what kind of like awkward position that that puts them them in, as well as a position where they have less. Maybe self autonomy in order to accomplish their own ends or or do their own things that they want to do. Um, so I thought those were both really interesting discussions, and I think it ties in really well with some of the ways that the Hellenistic astrologers may have been trying to conceptualize this using things like these opposing qualities. Now you did you did miss the or overlook um, the
1: Valens passage that I said that I had found okay. um, that is reflected in in later people like Saul. But we'll have um, so maybe we should wait until we
0: look at at that special topic in Saul. Okay, sure. Um, so let me so that's that's basically, you know, when Valens defines it in that way, that's really compelling to me. Not just that he gave this definition where he grouped mm. being opposite to its own house as being similar to a planet being opposite to its exaltation, but the fact that he uses it three times at least in a few different exam in a two different example charts is pretty compelling to me. Um, but other than that, in um, the Serapio, there's a collection of um, passages that was attributed to Serapio. Some of it may come from Serapio, some of it may come from other sources. Um, Eduardo Gramaglia translated this at one point, And there's a passage in here where it's talking about um, the idea of finding the master of the nativity. And at one point he says that planets in opposition to their domiciles is actually a disqualifying condition according to whatever astrologer is being drawn on, whether it's Srapio or some earlier astrologer. So let's see. So in the Holden translation, it says that the astrologers do not approve the prevalence as chart ruler of the one that is under the sunbeams and the one that is in its fall. And the one in opposition, and in a word, the one having a bad phase. Or in another translation, for example, in Levant's translation, he says that astrologers do not consider the prevalence of domicile mastership the star that is under the beams, that is depressed, that is in opposition, and again, it uses the term enantioma here, or Mm -hmm. simply has a bad appearance. So to me, this is pretty compelling because this means that either Serapio or some other Early Hellenistic astrologer, when doing the calculations for determining the master of the nativity, would discount a planet that was presumably opposite to its own domicile. All right, so moving on in Theaetio, Book Three, Chapter Two, Sentence Three, Hephaestio um, has a general, like a general chapter on picking general principles for picking electional charts. And towards the end of this, he instructs you to look at the ruler of the Ascendant, the Moon in particular, and then he says, quote, and the stars should not be in diameters with their own domiciles and exaltations, nor in a weak condition. So this is really explicit mm. by the time of Hephaistu, and Hephaistu is living around 415-ish CE, so early 5th century. So it's getting you know, later in the Hellenistic tradition. But at least by this point, by the time of Hephaestio and Rhetorius, it seems like this is becoming a much more common and and well-defined concept. Well, and 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 the two primary sources, it seems, that
1: um that Hephaestion used for, well, for nativities, one of his main for nativities and elections, mm-hmm. um, his two main sources were Ptolemy and Dorotheus. So it's yep. not like he was just drawing on. You know the latest fad, right? But he or, was drawing on he was drawing on first century, first and second century authors,
0: for to, yeah, to a or, large extent, or innovating. I mean, for the for the most part, Hephaestus is a largely not innovative author. He's really just drawing on most of the time Ptolemy, and then other times, especially in Book Five, or sorry, in Book Three of Hephaestus, he's largely just drawing on Dorotheus. So, anytime we're drawing, we're looking at stuff in Hephaestia, we have a real question of, you know, is this just Hephaestia talking, or is he paraphrasing this from an earlier author like Dorotheus? And the answer is usually probably that he's getting this genuinely from Dorotheus. So, in another chapter in book three, chapter five, in a sexual section where he's talking about investigating the prenatal lunation and inception charts. Um, he starts talking about the assembly, and assembly is the term that you and Eduardo in your translation of Hephaistu used for the pre-inception chart lunation conjunction, right? Yeah, for the conjun- a conjunctional nativity, yeah. Okay. So
1: it says... Or a conjunctional uh, inception if you're doing that in election charts, yeah.
0: Yeah. So he starts telling, giving you instructions to look at the ruler of that prenatal lunation And he says, when the ruler of the assembly occupies its own place or is in a triangle to the place, it will produce those who succeed in everything and and those effective in acquisition. However, this will not be the case when found to be in aversion or oppositional. And again, it uses the term enantioma. Again, grouping aversion together with the oppositional placement mm. so that they're really firmly starting to treat it more and more of a planet being opposite to its domicile as being like or pretty close to aversion. Um, and then finally, there's an example, and I actually quoted this in my book and I thought it was pretty compelling where Retorius um, preserves this delineation of an example chart which later scholars identified as the birth chart of a uh, like a 5th-century uh, scholar named Pamprepius of Panopolis. And this guy was apparently a noble pagan scholar who rose to high position, but he ended up being banished by his enemies at one point in his life or possibly twice. So, uses his birth chart. And at one point, he's looking at like the triplicity rulers of the sect light and the Ascendant, and he's also looking at the condition of the Moon. And he notes that both of them in, are in Taurus and that the ruler of Taurus in this person's birth chart is Venus, and it's located in Scorpio, which is the sign of its detriment or opposition. And he says, but also Venus, ruler of it and the Moon, uh, posited in opposition to her. So he says basically the ruler of the Moon is Venus and the ruler of Saturn is Venus, and they're both in opposition to her. And then Rotorius asks, how could he not have been a troubles- had a troublesome first age, but indeed also flights were made in many places because of the Moon's being opposed by its own sign ruler? And then in order to back this up, Rhetorius then quotes some earlier Hellenistic author who he doesn't identify. It may be Dorotheus, it may be some other astrologer who wrote in verse. And the verse says, Behold, the Moon is in the domicile of some star. And if you find that one lurking in opposition, he will also indeed be a fugitive, obscure, and a wanderer. So if the Moon is in Sagittarius,
1: and her lord Jupiter is in his detriment in uh, Gemini, opposing her. So she's in a sign in which the lord of the sign is in its own detriment, opposing that sign.
0: Yeah, and I think that's partially because the moon, as it one of its general significations, is supposed to be like the home and the living situation. Mm-hmm. But if the moon yeah. and the sign it's in indicate the home and living situation, but the ruler of that. Is in the sign opposite to that, then it must indicate that which is antithetical to living at home. And the most antithetical situation to living at home is actually being banished from your home country and unable to return home, but having to stay abroad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's pretty compelling. And then elsewhere, Rotorius quotes the same rule in an earlier chapter where he says the moon being opposed to its own ruler makes fugitives, dishonored persons, wanderers, and those living abroad. And then there's just basically a bunch of other… I mean, Rhetorius is the first author who firm, who, finally at the end of the Hellenistic tradition, he moves this from just the delineation sections like Dorotheus and Valens were doing. And right at the top of his work when he's defining basic concepts, he actually has a definition of detriment and he groups it when he mentions all the signs of the zodiac in with the basic properties of like domicile. Um, exaltation, fall, and then he says the sign of a planet's detriment. Mm-hmm. Um, and in chapter 7 of Rhetorius, he actually announces that he's going to explain the, rash- the rationale for not just the exaltations and depressions, but also the concept of contrariety or detriment. And then he, he does so in chapter 8 where he has this long paragraph that says, and this is from Schmidt's translation, why is why is it that the domiciles of the sun and the moon are contrary? And he uses the term enantioma, so it could you could say detriment here to the house, to the domiciles of Kronos or of Saturn. And then Rhetorius says, <clears throat> We say that it is because the sun and the moon are the lights of the cosmos, while Kronos is the master of darkness, whence light is always contrary to darkness and darkness to light. Again, why is it that the houses of Hermes are contrary to the houses of Zeus, and the houses of Zeus to the houses of Hermes? We say that it's because Zeus is the overseer of possessions and abundance, while Hermes is always the master of arguments. The intellectual facility then is always contrary to and looks down upon the desire for possessions, and abundance is contrary to what is intellectual. Then again, why is it That the houses of Mars are contrary to the houses of Venus. We say that it is because Venus is the overseer of every desire and delight and pleasure, while Mars is the overseer of every fear and war and passion. The delightful and appetitive and pleasurable then is contrary to the terrible and the passionate and the polemical." So, this is Rhetorius's attempt to explain and rationalize and actually formalize the concept of detriment at the end of the tradition where he's saying it's not just about a planet opposing its sign and the tension of the opposition being difficult, but it also has to do with the interaction between a planet when it's staying as a guest in another sign and the ruler of that sign has contrary or literally opposite significations Mm -hmm. that somehow Cancel out or antithetical to that planet's, mm-hmm. you know, inherent qualities or significations. Mm-hmm. So that rational rationale also then comes up and sort of gets enshrined later in the medieval tradition as well. And I think it shows up in Abu Mashar and maybe other authors, right?
1: Yeah, I think uh, when we get to to the slides with my quotes on it from Abu Mashar and Saul, we'll see a lot of these things come together, and I I think i think they fall into in i've what i've done in my course is i've put i've grouped them into three groups mm-hmm. that seem pretty consistent and uh uh the the quotes that i've given you many of them come from or are based on uh traditional um earlier texts okay but they um, but they start they start to fall into groups and We've sort of explored through these um through these quotations why they could fall into groups, because we've seen some of the same reasoning
0: pop up again and again. Right. Um yeah, let me see if there's any more that are that present anything newer unique in the Hellenistic authors, because most of the rest are from Rhetorius, although some of Rhetorius' delineations get copied over by Theophilus of Edessa at least once or twice. So for example, Rhetorius says the ruler of the fourth house opposing its house means that the native will meet his end abroad. So the native will die abroad if the ruler of the fourth is opposing its own house. And Theophilus copies this a few centuries later and he says the ruler of the underground pivot opposing its own house say that he will die in foreign lands. Um, or similar things with the ruler of the 11th place. Uh, There's eventually one delineation, I believe, of like the lot of the father being and and what happens when the ruler is opposite to that and indicating that the native is illegitimate in some way or that the parentage is contested. Here it is, Rhetorius 548. If the ruler of the lot of father should be found to be opposite to its own house, where the lot of the father happens to be, it says that such are suppositious, which means like illegitimate or falsely presented as a genuine heir. Mm -hmm. So those are all the Hellenistic quotes, and there's a few more, but I'll leave them for people to check out in the PDF that I'll attach to this episode. And to me, I think that shows how this concept started developing. And even though it wasn't perhaps formally defined early on, we see like a constellation of overlapping concepts and reasons why it eventually may have started to coalesce in that direction. Until eventually, by the time of Rhetorius, he really does start formalizing the definition. And then Rhetorius's text is one of the ones that was passed off to the medieval tradition, in addition to parts of Valens and large parts of Dorotheus. Right? I'm sorry, say that last part again. That uh, that Rhetorius's text was was did make it into the medieval tradition the arabic tradition and also parts of valens made it into the medieval tradition as well as large parts of dorotheas
1: yeah they made it in there in different
0: forms but yes they had access to those to that material okay so as a result of that probably or as a result of those texts making it into the medieval tradition we start to see something very similar showing up in those texts and this is where you started grouping it into the the three categories of where those references mm-hmm. show up, mm-hmm. and we also see some uh, some
1: different some specialized vocabulary also in the Arabic as well. So um, the word that now now that we've been going through these, the word that clearly they're using as their version of enantioma in Greek, mm-hmm. um, the verb that they use uh, in Arabic is dadda. Which means um, it has a very similar range of meanings: to be contrary, opposed, contrasting, antagonistic, and to be inverse, like to be the inversion of something. Mm. Um, and um,
0: so inversion—that that would, that would be a good translation too, like mm-hmm. the sign of the sign of a planet's inversion. Mm-hmm. I'm still thinking about because it it's like I like antithesis conceptually, but it's very hard to like put in a like usable, it doesn't roll off the tongue as yeah. easily. Yeah. Um and but it's yeah. that falls
1: within this kind of range. So dada is uh their main verb. Um, but there's another uh word which is wabal. And wabal is an interesting term. It 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 refers to well, it refers to a theory of um illness coming through bad air. So it's the wabao literally means unhealthiness uh uh but it has to do with the idea that the unhealthy body is corrupted somehow usually by bad air. So so there's a sense of disintegration and corruption in that term as well.
0: So those are the two main ones they they use and is that the um, term that's probably the term then that eventually is translated into Latin in something that starts becoming detriment, right? Could be, could be. I haven't tracked it exactly because
1: uh, detrimentum really means to like to wear something out. Mm. Um, it does not really mean the opposition of something. Mm-hmm. So it could be that they got this idea of detriment from Wabao, but I can't be
0: sure quite yet. Okay. But the point is that the Arabic astrologers, they started developing a special term or two that were used for this because they were starting to recognize that it was something unique. And they must have picked up from the late Hellenistic tradition that it wasn't just an opposition aspect, but there was something unique about this. And that's always been one of the interesting things that I've appreciated about your studies of medieval astrology since the beginning, going back to like 2007 and 2008 in your books, is really showing how the early medieval astrologers that were translating the texts into Arabic from Greek and earlier authors, they really did try really hard to find words that were close to um, the Greek technical terms that they were translating. And they were very like um, conscious of that.
1: Yeah, in fact, um, if you think about the difference, so we've talked about the difference in Greek between two signs in a diameter which is the normal aspect term, and this enantioma, which is a kind of contrariety. In Arabic, it's very similar. Their word for the opposition is standardly uh, muqabala. And muqabala actually means to stand across from something and look at it like this.
0: Mm. Okay.
1: It means to be across in a relationship with something like that. But the word that they use for the, the word that they use here for the contrariety of being in detriment is Muldada. and that means to, uh, to be in a state of contrariety or inversion or hostility. So it has similar ideas of being opposite, but it's a it's a different verb, different root. They were clearly being trying to be careful. they must have noticed. Uh, that the their Greek and Persian sources were using special terms.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, do you want to look at some of the passages? Yeah. Okay. That you found from the medieval tradition. So here's a few. Um, I threw this in my own PowerPoint. Okay. If that's okay. I it,
1: yeah, I put it on. I put it on a couple of slides. I listed about. I listed them in several categories. Are all, are they all here?
0: Yeah, they're just I separated it okay. into like um, okay. five slides. I think.
1: Let's start with the first one. Okay.
0: Is this it, or yeah, do you so, wanna- so
1: this first one is just a general statement about uh, it's a list of of uh, bad conditions that the moon could be in, and here now we see one of the things that we've been seeing before when she's in the contrary of her own house and i think that's the muldada term mm-hmm. uh, or she is absent from it and that means she's in aversion to it
0: okay so they're so grouping we're... it together again mm-hmm. okay so that's so this... just
1: a general definitional th- kind of throwaway kind of definitional statement
0: yeah but a, a general statement about these are eight conditions of difficult placement in electional charts yeah okay and it
1: and and it's grouping those t- uh detriment and aversion in the way that we can see that the predecessors did, too. Okay. Um, another th- uh, So here's the, one of the three major groups of themes is uh, what I call division, contrariety, and dependence. Mm-hmm. And the idea here is that when you're in the opposite of the sign that you rule, you are in a condition that is similar to being alien or peregrine. Because if you're in a place that you don't rule, that's an alien or peregrine planet, you are subject to the uh situations and the significations and the qualities of the planet that does rule that place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if you're in a place that, like we saw, if you're in a sign whose Lord has the significations that are the opposite of yours, then you are there's a kind of divided attention. The um And then there's a kind of a conflict going on with what the planet wants to do and what it is, the conditions it's able to operate under. So here are are two quotes from um, Saul. One is from his aphorisms. He says, if the Lord of the Ascendant or the Moon was in the seventh from its own house, then the owner of the sought matter, that's the querent, this is in a horary chart, the querent will be reluctant about the sought matter and it will weigh heavily upon him so mm. what do you do when you are seeking something that you don't actually want right uh or you um you're going for something that you already feel burdened by um that could describe the situation of being in the opposite of your own house because you're now um you're laboring under, uh, under, you know, contrary conditions.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: The another one is uh, uh, in in the book of que- on questions, if the Lord of the seventh was in the ascendant, so the Lord of the seventh is in detriment by being in the ascendant, mm-hmm. then the woman who here is the seventh house will be more eager than the man is. So, the Lord of the Seventh manages manages the woman in this question, but she's in the house of the man, which means it's as though uh, she is more subject to and dependent on and more interested in the man than he is on her. Mm. So, again, we have this idea that you're not just in a different place, uh, you're in a place where you where the attention of the planet is somehow being divided or divided against itself or two contrary interests are at work rather yeah. than the planet in its own sign being more unified and direct
0: yeah, I think that that may be like another area where this may have come from as well is through um A division also between like the first house and the seventh house, and the first house always being like the house of the self, either in natal astrology or in even electional astrology or horary astrology, and the seventh house being like the default place of the other, which becomes like the partner or the marriage partner or other people in general, but also becomes sort of like the default other, and possibly this concept of detriment growing out of that partially. As the place of like othering, and mm-hmm. when a planet is in the place of its detriment, um, it being in a situation where it it is the one who is othered um, and has its own interests in some way um, set aside or or minimized in some way mm-hmm. so and then that also kind of works with derivative houses because you always kind of have that issue anytime you're looking at the the sort of binary pair of two opposing houses and the topics that they signify um, as being similar sometimes but also sometimes opposed or um, sort of um, not conflicting but um, competing with each other in some way. Mm -hmm. Like what happens when you contrast like in a horary question like the second house of your finances with the eighth house of like the partner or other people's finances or something like that. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, back to your quotes.
1: Yeah. Another, uh, yeah. Actually, another way to put that would be the difference between the second and the eighth is not just the eighth is the opposition to it, it's that the eighth is the money of other people. It is exactly. subject, it's subject to other people's control. Right. It's not just a sort of abstract opposition. Um, the people who own that money and are controlling it might have different kinds of interests than you
0: do. Right. Yeah, and, and what happens when that happens? And, and it creates an inherent sort of contrast or conflict. It's not one that's that can't be overcome. And if the placement is well-placed, you can see the positive if it has like benefics configured to it you can see the mm-hmm. positive resolution of that um versus if it has negative indications then that could be a challenging or a negative thing but the point is initially that it does set up a sort of contrast that inherently has a bit of a tension because it's almost like a contradiction mm-hmm. um there might be a similar contrast even if we're talking in more modern terms but still relatable to the hellenistic tradition between like the fourth house of your Home and living situation and private life versus the tenth house of like your career and your public life. And what happens if, let's say, the ruler of the fourth is in the tenth and your private life is suddenly public and the inherent tension in that versus um, if the ruler of the tenth is in the fourth or what have you. So maybe some of this then grew out of a continued tradition of using things like the rulers of the houses and just what happens inherently when the ruler of one house is opposite to its house, just when you start playing with that sort of logic. And that's something that was always there from very early in the tradition from Dorotheus and Valens onwards of looking at the rulers of the houses. Although it is interesting that it's not really till Rhetorius that you do get him for the first time in chapter 57 where he systematically tries to go through and delineate the rulers of the houses when they're in different houses. And that's something that, as a tradition progressed, became much more standard as a as a basic technique.
1: But we've got here the idea so far in this first category, we've got the idea of a contrasting place by opposition, but also being <clears throat> having a planet's um, you know, attitude and interests being mixed with contrary planets who are in charge of that place.
0: Mm, right. Okay, so back to your quotes.
1: The second um quote, and I just have one here is the idea of corruption and disintegration, and again, this is the idea that a you know a healthy person or or a healthy body is uh has a kind of integrity and balance and cohesion. But a sick body is one that is falling apart and has less cohesion and more imbalance, and that's why they use the word wabal, unhealthiness, to describe the sign of detriment. Mm-hmm. So he says uh, when he's talking about children, he says if you and if you found these planets in their unhealthiness, he will not have children. He lists some planets, and these eventually ultimately come from Valens and Dorotheus. Uh, If you find these planets in their unhealthiness, he will not have children. While if they were raised, that is, if he did have children, uh, he'll be saddened because of them.
0: Mm. Okay, so a sort of corruption of what the house is supposed to signify under the best-case scenario.
1: Yeah, it either either corrupts and disintegrates the, the topic itself, or even if the topic is produced, it makes things fall apart later.
0: Okay. That that reminds me then, and this is also probably another concept that may have, again, over time tied into and helped this concept of detriment to like develop organically is very early in the Hellenistic tradition in uh, Antiochus and then Porphyry. You have the definition of the concept of counteraction that mm-hmm. they say when a planet is like well-situated in a chart, if it's in a sign ruled by a malefic and the malefic is itself poorly placed in like the 6th or the 12th house, then it can drag down or counteract the significations of the original planet and it can sort of corrupt them or maltreat them in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, So that notion of a planet when it's not in its own sign really relying on the domicile lord of that sign was like a big deal to the Hellenistic astrologers. And -hmm. this again could be a reason why or could point to a reason why a planet being in a sign ruled by a planet that has contrary basic principles could be problematic to the functioning of that planet. Mm-hmm. All right, and then you have a few more.
1: I have I've one more category and then a special topic. So the this third category is things that have to do with foreigners, travel, and some other things, including something that I've found also is that, um, similarly to fall, a planet can, in detriment, can so- show something that is considered unusual or countercultural or disapproved of, mm. like it's it's contrary to what's familiar. So here's here are a few here are a few examples here. So the first one from Saul's Nativities. This is the chapter on uh, travel chapters on travel. And if you found the moon contrary to her own house, and the Lord of the Ascendant contrary to the Ascendant, then the native's livelihood will be outside of his parents' country. Mm-hmm. And there's other passages too that include the sun in this. If the sun is in the con- so it means that the planets that are describing the native and that also in, uh, describe the native's upbringing and homeland. If they are in the opposite uh, places, then the native will will do those things abroad or in a different homeland. Right. So among for- foreigners, travel and strangers. Got it. Okay. The next one is. And this is this is from the, one of the chapters on religion and it's very similar I think it's based on a passage in um Rhetorius
0: um there's a couple that are like this. Yeah, I mean that if, last one was very similar to Rhetorius's delineation of like the mm-hmm. moon and then he, Rhetorius quoted that earlier author in verse so it's like we can see a continuation of the Greek like interpretation. Mhm. And uh in in the middle passage If the Lord
1: of the lot of spirit was contrary to itself, so in detriment, it indicates transgression, foolishness, and slander. And this is similar to the passage in um, Rhetorius, because Rhetorius talks about this as like the person will like speak in tongues and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like somehow, there, it's hard to tell whether this person is a lunatic like they're out of their minds or whether they're inspired maybe by strange wisdom somehow but they're not themselves uh you know if you think like a maybe channeling or or speaking in tongues or something you're you but you're also channeling something else and yeah. so that seems to be the kind of um you're, you're, or you're crossing the boundaries into a different dimension, which could either be lunacy or an inspiration.
0: Well, and also just the idea that the lot of spirit is supposed to signify the mind and intellect, and that's how like Valens mm-hmm. talks about it and how Dorotheus talks about it to some extent. And what happens when you have the opposite of that or you, have the, you incorporate the notion of contrariety is when a person has internal Intellectual conflicts with themselves, or is mm-hmm. like canceling out their own thoughts in some way. Um, mm-hmm. So we have that that quote from Rhetorius. Here it says, um, "This is Holden's translation." It says, "The ruler of the lot of spirit being opposed to the lot of spirit makes those who give poor, advo- poor advice, those with contrary opinions, braggarts and insolent persons." So contrary opinions is interesting because it's almost like somebody who likes to be contrary or contrarian uh, is a Mm -hmm. term that we still use today of somebody that likes to pick the opposite side in debates just for the sake of of being um, contrary. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you've got
1: another one here uh, from Saul, uh, the Lord of the lot of the Spirit looking at its own Lord from its unhealthiness. This is a kind of more complicated uh, uh, one, but it's It's a similar kind of thing. Um, you know, is this, is this person
0: off their rocker, or are they channeling something really important? Right. And then even Theophilus picks up on this, saying, "The ruler of the lot of spirit opposing it makes those indiscreet of counsel with contrary opinions, boastful and in insolent persons. And I think and the third the, th- the uh,
1: third passage from this third category. comes from Abu Mushar, and it seems like, uh, yeah, okay, we've seen versions of this. This is in profections. So, suppose you're profecting the Ascendant and you come to the seventh house, he calls the house of wedding. Mm-hmm. And in the revolution that is in real time at the solar revolution, its Lord and the Moon are opposing their own houses or exaltations then the owner of the revolution, the client, will hate his own country and travel to another."
2: Mm.
1: Okay. So, this is this is a similar issue of dignity as a homeland, detriment as travel, but also as a form of hostility.
0: Mm. Yeah, and, and interestingly, and then incorporating that into a timing technique so that it's like, those positions indicate the natal promise, but that natal promise won't actually happen or be delivered until it's activated as a time mm-hmm. lord. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. And did we talk about that? I mean, it's not because it's not just the idea of a planet being in its sign, being at home, and then um, detriment being away from home, but the sign of a planet's detriment would literally be in the zodiac as far as you can get away from a planet's domicile so mm-hmm. that's why they would be interpreting it as being away from home or the opposite of home or even being cast out of your home and banished because the sign opposite to a planet's domicile is literally as far in the zodiac as a planet can get away yeah. from from its home yeah okay so then i think if we could look at the last i think the last uh
1: Thing I had here were some special topics adoption and adultery, and uh, both of these come from ancient sources. And so, the first one about adop- uh, adoption or you being a, being alleged to be the child of a different father hmm. this comes from uh, Dorotheus uh, 114, sentence six, and the very end of Valens 232. Uh, and there's several versions of this in. Uh, Saul's nativities. I don't know. He liked the material so much he had to say it three times <laughs> or four times. Okay. Um, but there's there's a couple versions of this. If the Lord of the opposite sign of the lot of the father is on the lot, or if that planet looks at the lot from its own sign of detriment. Wait a minute. That is that is said very awkwardly um the main thing that the main one they use is if if the lord of the sign that's opposite the lot so the lord of the sign of detriment mm. is on the lot and so is in its own sign of detriment okay. um, it's going to bring that sense of foreignness foreignness and probably also um uh you know suspicion and immorality and that kind of thing it's going to bring that to the topic of the father Your father isn't your father, it's someone else who's your father.
0: Right. So it brings the idea of the other to whatever that topic is, Mm -hmm. if um, the sign, uh, basically the Lord of the sign of detriment, is in the sign that you're looking at. Mm -hmm.
1: And similarly with adultery, Saul uses a passage that we can trace back to Dorotheus, and he gives there's two possible uh, examples here either the lord of that opposite sign of the lot of marriage is on the lot or and or the lord of the lot of marriage is in the seventh from the lot namely in its detriment and in those cases Car- uh, uh, Saul and Dorotheus talk about uh adultery and keeping secret mistresses and uh that sort of thing so it's immoral and secret
0: sex with other people Right. So in both instances the thing that's tying it together is just how would you identify in a chart if like it was the other versus the person who it's supposed to be theoretically? And that I think
1: also ties back to um some of the general meanings of being corrupt or bad um because and I I I mean, I've seen this in client work too, where planet and detriment can also mean things and people that go bad,
0: you mm. know, um, that are doing bad things. Sure. I mean, it can go it can it can go either way. It can be like positive or negative. Let's talk about that. I mean, I did want to read this passage really quickly because I have it was a really interesting passage, the father one from Dorotheus, from your translation of Dorotheus. Um, and it says it's kind of complicated, and you had to insert a not in brackets. But it says, And see who is the lord of the sign in which the lot of fathers is. For if you found it not looking at the lot, or you found the lord of the lot in what follows its own house, or the lord of the sign opposed to the sign that the lot is on, that is on the lot, then the native will be attributed to someone who is not his father. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: and Valens actually has a clearer statement of that, which I can read. Okay. Um, I have it up right here. It's at the end of 232. And so he says, um, He says, take the adoption. Now, here he seems to be talking about the adoption of the father. That is to say, whether the father himself is adopted.
0: Mm, okay.
1: So take the adoption of the father from the diameter that is dropped down from the lot. you find the lot of the father and then find its diameter. If the lord of the lot of the father should happen to be upon the diameter or the lord of that diameter upon the lot, it indicates that the father was adopted.
0: Okay.
1: similarly also, if the lord of the lot of the mother, and he says the same or similar things for the mother, then the mother is adopted. So they might not all have agreed on exactly who this applied to, the native or the father, but um, so, but some of these very same factors we've been talking about um, mean that other people are either either sleeping around with other people and the
0: wrong people, or you've been adopted by other people yeah so just this idea of again this idea of othering and I it's a very like sort of first house versus seventh house type thing, and that's sort of also where like seventh house in the early tradition in like the Hermes text, there's that contrast between the first house signifying life and the seventh house signifying death, but later in some of the texts, even like travel gets associated in some instances mm-hmm. with the seventh house mm-hmm. um and that And it's and it's
1: again it's it's not just the contrast, but you're being raised in someone else's house. Mm -hmm. Someone else is taking care of you, so this opposition doesn't have to be a
0: bad thing if you were being taken care of somebody else. Right. It just means you're by. It's not you know, your original family or what have mm-hmm. you. Or in another instance, if we're talking about, let's say, banishment or something, like you're in a foreign country or a foreign culture. And in some ways, as a, just as a result of that, in and of itself, you're out of place in some way. Maybe that's another key phrase we could use, is like out of place. But whether that works out well or works out poorly is going to really depend on the condition of the planet and its configuration with benefics and malefics mm-hmm. and things like that it's just the the out-of-placeness of the placement that really is the key focus in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so maybe what, what makes
1: detriment so similar to alienation where you're in another planet's place, but in some ways worse than it is because you're in the place of a planet with contrary meanings. Right.
0: Yeah. And even though it's so okay, let's take that analogy further because that's something I really want to emphasize about this, because what want to get into a little bit like the actual interpretation of detriment in practice. Sometimes if if your dom- if the domicile lord's like not there, or let's say it's a malefic and it's squaring or has a really hard aspect then and it's contrary to the sect and that planet's just getting hammered, the planet in detriment is getting hammered, um that being out of place is going to be something bad and negative and is going to result in in not very good outcomes for whatever it signifies. But if the domicile lord is there or it's being supportive in some way, it's like being in a foreign country that's different, has a very different culture from your own, but you're getting support from your hosts, and perhaps you're able to adapt to that. Um, rather than have that be something that's continually oppressive, it might be difficult at first. And actually, I, I spoke to somebody recently who was using their chart as an example of detriment, and they had Mercury in its detriment, and they said that they were born in a, in a different country, and then they moved to the US when they were five, and they had to Learn English, but it was very, they were very out of place and they felt very uncomfortable at first being in a completely different culture and not speaking the language. But then eventually, as the person grow, grew up, they were able to overcome that and to learn the language and then actually become a really fantastic writer. Um, that, that was a really good example to me of detriment and, and using some of these analogies and how they might work out in practice. Mm-hmm yeah okay. So, um did you have any more quotes, or is that all the quotes?
1: Nope, those are those are the quotes.
0: Okay. So I think then, so your three categories of how this comes out in the medieval tradition is is very similar to, I think, as we saw how it comes out in the Hellenistic tradition, which is category one is like inner division and contrariety category 2 that you said is corruption and disintegration and category 3 is foreign things strangers and others and travel yeah and travel okay yeah um so what do we historically you know we've had our like historian hats on most of the time here and what is the historical summary then the historical summary is that detriment doesn't seem to have been introduced as an essential sign quality early in the Hellenistic tradition, but it does seem from a relatively early stage from at least Dorotheus and Valens onward to be treated as a secondary quality that could be problematic um, for a few different reasons. One of them because of the nature of the opposition, uh, to a planet's domicile, and it started being grouped together with a planet's domicile lord being an aversion to that sign, and then secondarily, potentially, uh, as Rhetorius later interpreted it, through the quality of the domicile lord of the sign having significations that are opposite to that planet who's staying as a guest in that sign, at in the sign of its detriment.
1: Yeah, I think I think. Um several things perhaps all happened at once because um uh, it's because the opposition is a very it, you you realize pretty quickly that the opposition is a special kind of aspect mm-hmm. because it it brings in uh, it brings in extra considerations that other
0: aspects don't necessarily do right and even potentially Some of the astrologers because in Hellenistic tradition, sign-based aspects were still very important. Mm -hmm. And some of the astrologers may have taken into account additional things like the elemental qualities that would have made them interpreted a certain way versus other Hellenistic astrologers like Ptolemy may not have taken that into account, so may not have gone as far in that direction. Um, So it does seem that the concept though wasn't, I mean, we have to say it wasn't defined um in the initial like introductory texts in the same way as domicile and exaltation and fall were and it only later started to get that. So I think by the time of Abu Mashar, he does firmly um define it with the other qualities, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And and Saul also dis, uh defines it. So we're talking
0: uh uh eighth and ninth centuries. Okay. And and for all intents and purposes, Rhetorius does as well in like the sixth or seventh yeah. century. So it's that time frame when it becomes firmly um sort of established, um, but it has earlier precedent.
1: So the so what we wanna know is because exaltation and fall seem pretty straightforward and simple and mm-hmm. everyone defines them and the vocabulary is there and everyone knows what they mean. Right. So, the question is how much of this is a patchwork of, with detriment? How much of it is a patchwork of things that they just sort of cobbled together versus um, interrelated features that are really there that you have to recognize but took time to, to coalesce into um, like the factors are just laying there. All they're, all they're waiting for is a name. Which Enantioma seems to have been the name. Um, I mean if you look at if you look at the um at at the categories I have, uh the division and contrariety, corruption and disintegration, and foreignness travel others, well this this a planet's own house is precisely the contrary of all of those. It is a place of unity and sameness. It's a place of healthiness and coordination of effort, of and it's a place, yeah, an autonomy and a place of the homeland. So it's not like they, like, like they casually came across some things and then kind of wove it together in this artificial way, mm-hmm. because a planet's own house really does mean the opposite of all these very same things. Right. So it could be that it could be that the reason it took a long time for this to um it could be a reason that we that we don't see a really unified um treatment of this is simply that detriment is complicated in a way that fall is not
0: yeah I mean it's it's complicated and also it almost you could almost take it for granted to a certain extent. Like I, I hesitate because I could mm. be charged with being anachronistic to say that you can take it for mm-hmm. granted. And certainly, we have to be careful too, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to issues like this. Because somebody walking in from the Renaissance tradition and just expecting that detriment would be there if they actually read Firmicus or Ptolemy, honestly, and realized that it's not there in those texts, or at least they don't mention it, then you have to realize that you can't just assume it's there but if some of those ideas like a planet having self autonomy or being at home or other things are inherent in the concept of domicile then to a certain extent a planet being opposite in the sign opposite to that that it's a natural extension of that mm. that there's something opposite about that sign or that house so that it may have been kind of a given mm-hmm. um yeah
1: it's 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 that question of of are we how much are we at an advantage or disadvantage when we're trying to reconstruct this material? Right. Because we're at a disadvantage because we, didn't, we don't live in their world, so we're not always sure what they took for granted. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we have access to way more languages and texts than any one of them did. And so we're able to survey uh, from the outside, which can be a real advantage sometimes it takes an outsider to see things.
0: Yeah, to get kind of a bird's eye view, which is what we're mm-hmm. trying to provide here by showing all of these different quotes. So instead of just being like one thing in isolation, you're seeing how all these different astrologers are tying this together using very similar wording and grouping it together in similar categories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to think of there, there's like a few points still to touch on in order to wrap this up, but um, what else are we missing?
1: I guess I just want to say whatever was going on and and uh, um, whatever was going on, whatever the real story is, uh, I think we can say that these kinds of categories that we've been looking at with detriment are real. they are real because they immediately draw in. Other concepts from astrology. It mm-hmm. makes detriment special. Uh it makes detriment special even if it's complicated.
0: Yeah. Um, and that's that's what's actually the most important and interesting about this to me is it makes detriment come alive in a way that's much more real and much more interesting than just the sort of flat two-dimensional view of it that it sort of became in the later tradition where it was just like well if you have domicile then you get 5 points but if you get you're in detriment you get negative 4 points or like whatever whatever the counting yeah. system was right yeah um here there's like specific conceptual meanings that you can extract from it and then begin to look for and apply in example charts in very concrete and pref- potentially profound ways whether you're I mean, what's interesting here is that occasionally some of the Hellenistic astrologers are looking at concrete external manifestations in the person's life, but sometimes they're actually talking about like internal things, like when they're talking about the ruler of the lot of spirit and the person having like contrary thoughts or mm-hmm. contrary opinions or things like that. They're talking about almost like a psychological context of detriment in some way.
1: Oh well, Saul talking about reluctance and that the thing that you're aiming for is also weighing
0: heavily on you at the same time. Mm, right. Right. So there's a level of like nuance and detail that's there as well that's accessible now to us by understanding this and also by being careful not to project this backwards. Because I think that's one of the issues that people sometimes run into when they look at this is that you could be looking for, well. This is the renaissance concept of detriment, that it's like an inherent sign quality. And so if we look back and we don't see an inherent sign quality like the concept of exaltation or or domicile in the Hellenistic tradition, then the concept doesn't exist. When in fact what happened is it was developing, detriment developed out of this constellation of different overlapping meanings um, during the course of the tradition before it eventually became. Um, crystallized as a concept in like the seventh through the ninth century, and then later after that, sort of flattened out into something much more more simple. Mm-hmm. What?
1: Yeah, you've got more of a con- an interrelated constellation of ideas with detriment. Each one seems to kind of imply the other if you look mm-hmm. at it closely, in a way that you don't really see with fall. Right, but but I like your idea that. They might have used that word enantioma because to them it already implied several of these complicated things. Mm -hmm. But we don't appreciate the immediate effect that that word might have had on them and that they, you know,
0: when they used it in that way. Yeah. And I should have read the entry of the Liddell and Scott lexicon, the Greek dictionary for ancient Greek, because it actually has a few sub meanings of other translations of the meaning of the term term in anteoma, which it says primarily means opposition or opposite but it also means they say incompatibility conflicting differences and discrepancies so that right there it starts picking up a lot of the terms that where we see the astrologers going with that in some of their later interpretations uh i would just want to add um
1: i have here this is uh the this is the um standard wear dictionary of Arabic. So this, this is not the older Lane dictionary. Mm-hmm. But it also points out that um one of the words that we get from this uh f- from this is an antidote or a contraceptive mm-hmm. and antiseptics. So things that are working. Are explicitly working contrary to something else.
0: Right. I love that. Yeah, that that keeps taking me back to like antithesis. And I wish that worked better Mm. in a sentence and wasn't as awkward. But my primary terms are still the two I had in my book were like adversity, which was from what the uh, Latin translation of the Liber Hermetis, how they translated, I think, in in Antioma, where they translated as adversitas. And then exile, which is interesting because when I researched this, it turned out a bunch of other languages besides English, like I think in French and Portuguese, their term for detriment, one of their terms for detriment is actually exile. Mm -hmm. So it continued into even the modern traditions of astrology and some other languages, this idea that a planet being in its detriment meant being. Cast out of one's home, but it just didn't make it into English for some reason. So yeah. that is as one potential term, and then finally antithesis. Um, and you you introduced one other term earlier in this episode. I forget what it, what it was, but that was a good one as well. Inversion. Inversion, yeah. Inversion is really good. The idea of um, the opposite sign, inverting the significations of the planet. So just going mm-hmm. back to the the domicile scheme and the notion that. Um, here let me share like an image so for example um, Venus is or Saturn no the Sun and Leo for example so right now the Sun just moved into Leo a few days ago and I was rereading Abu Mashar in his treatment from the Hermes text of why Hermes supposedly assigned the Sun to Leo and it was entirely about assigning it to 15 degrees of Leo being the height of the summer and the height of um, The length of days and when the heat is at its most intense right in the middle of that season, and then assigning the Sun that being the reason for why the Sun should rule the sign of Leo or the 12th part of Leo. And then the opposite to that being um, Saturn being right in the middle of winter and ruling Aquarius as the opposing sign during the time of the year where the days are the shortest and the cold is sort of at the most intense. Mm -hmm. Um, So just that idea of like opposing qualities and then what happens if you take the Sun and you put it there in Aquarius during the middle of winter um, when it's cold and the days are short and there's not much sunlight um, versus taking Saturn, a cold dark planet that's not very visible and putting it in Leo and making it operate in that context. Um, You can sort of start to get the idea of like like I said, antithesis or inversion, the place of a planet's inversion. All right. Um, one thing I do want to say, though, is just from a practical standpoint, I do think one good thing about this and one pushback that's important is the idea that detriment is not like the end of the world. I think sometimes when people learn it, and especially because detriment became the term established later in the tradition, it was taken to mean that it's like this terrible, terrible thing to have or that If somebody has something in detriment that it means something negative about them or that it's the end of the world or that it's a major affliction. And I think one thing that's pretty clear is even once this gets established as a relatively significant concept in the late Hellenistic and early medieval tradition, they were still not treating it as like the worst thing that you could possibly have in your chart, right?
1: Right. It was often uh, in a list of other things. and, and it, it was, was like and,
0: way, way far down in that list.
1: I don't know about way far down, but it was definitely not mentioned as often as fall.
0: Right.
1: You know, some of the standard lists of the worst things would be uh fall being burned under the rays, um, being retrograde. Those those would almost always be mentioned before detriment and and appear as a cluster. Mm. Uh if uh, you know, without mentioning de- detriment.
0: Okay. And and then for me, like a large part of my process over the past decade is once I started to, because I was ambivalent about it for so long after reading the Hellenistic texts and finding it absent for the most part not knowing what to make of that, eventually once I realized it was a concept in the Hellenistic tradition, I started to pay attention and integrate it into my practice. And most of the past decade has been spent working on that, like figuring out what to call it, if not detriment, and also seeing how it works out in charts. um, My main conclusion from a practical standpoint is that while it can indicate an obstacle that arises or a sense of otherness or alienation that the person has in some part of their life, um, like I said earlier, if the planet is well-placed, it can still work out very well based on other considerations like configuration to benefics or house placement or other things like that. Whereas if it's afflicted, and has poor condition according to other things, that's when you can see those other compounding factors leading the detriment to be more of a problem. So, one of my favorite chart examples, for example, is like um the poet Maya Angelou that has Mercury in Pisces, and she had like a traumatic experience when she was younger um, that caused her to stop speaking because she was like afraid of the power of her voice, and she thought that something she had said had caused this really negative event to happen when she was like five or something. So she stopped speaking for years. But then later when she grew up, she sort of got her voice back and started speaking again and then grew up to be um a famous poet, of course. And I think Mercury's like in an it's in a adherence or a conjunction with like Venus and it's being bona fide. So there's a really positive like counterbalancing factor. So that even though there was that initial obstacle or problem there was also a positive resolution and she was able to adapt to it and become perfectly strong with that position um mm-hmm. despite the initial issues uh,
1: another example could be um uh well two examples i can think of as fr- uh, with friendship um the lord of the 11th in detriment in in the opposite house mm-hmm. um Your friendships might be with people who live in other parts of the country. They're far away. Your friends are far away. That's the travel part. Mm -hmm. But they're still your friends. However, having friends who are far away that you communicate with mainly by telephone can also be really difficult to keep holding together. Mm -hmm. That's the disintegration part. Right. And yet they're still your friends. And if it's Jupiter. Uh, and he's, let's say, in the same sign as Venus, um, they are your friends and they could be lasting friendships, but they take extra effort to hold together because the friends are far away.
0: Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Um, or we were talking about like second and eighth house examples, and I've seen examples of somebody that has like the ruler of the second. In the eighth, like Mercury, they have Gemini on the second house, and Mercury is the ruler of the second, and it is in the eighth house, which signifies both other people's money as well as mortality, and um, it's relatively well placed. It has some some bonification, but one of the things is that the native um, became an accountant, so they literally make their own money through other people's money and you, can, you you can see other situations like that when there's connections between the 2nd and the 8th yeah i mean i've seen the reverse as well like somebody that had the ruler of the 8th in the 2nd but it was actually a very difficult placement and they were somebody who um, they were very rich but then they um lost they got divorced and there was a major settlement <laughs> and they lost millions and millions of dollars, and it was a very public um, yeah. loss of money from that person that they then had to give to their former spouse. The, the ex took the money. Right.
1: So so this is also important for people to know that even in the texts where they talk about detriment in these kind of general ways, um, they do also point out that a lot depends on what kind of planet you're talking about, and the houses are different. I mean, right. S- I mean if you're married to someone your um you if you're married to someone your finances ought to be blended in some way. Mm-hmm. So it's not like any relationship between the 2nd and 8th houses is automatically bad. A lot depends on who the planets are. Right. Um so um so it depends on what houses we're also talking about their condition and so on. Um, but you can have, and I'm, I'm, uh, you can have a situation for example, where, um, I, uh, saw the chart of a man who had lots of planets in detriment and he was, he traveled a lot and had a, uh, uh, he worked for short amounts of time for companies all around the world. Um, but he was worried that these planets in detriment meant something very bad, but there were other indications in his chart through cardinal or the movable or convertible signs, that um, his life was characterized by the ability to change quickly, mm. and so because he um, because he was comfortable with change, it actually wasn't a problem for him. It was an exciting life. Mm. But if you're the kind of person where important planets are all in fixed signs, or that, like the angles are all fixed signs, but you have a lot of planets in detriment. That kind of instability that detriment brings can be a lot harder on you because you're the so- sort of person who doesn't adapt and change quickly
0: or well. Mm, sure. Yeah, so there can be different ways of adapting to it depending on how the chart's set up and what's involved. Um, another thing Worth mentioning here also is even though we're we're more traditional and so we're often our tendency is more to state this in terms of like good or bad or difficult easy versus challenging. There's also a level where it, some of these placements of planets and signs can be purely descriptive and describe how a person just goes about doing whatever that planet signifies, um, and that somehow, sometimes it can be opposite the opposite of how the planet might might perform in its most purest expression. So I know somebody, for example, that has like Jupiter and Virgo, and they really excel at collecting um, data, like a lot of little things, like thousands and thousands of things. They're they're an astrologer and they decided to like collect as many birth charts as they can and as many examples of different things as they could. And they excel at building these huge databases of things, but then sometimes have a hard time um, getting the big picture and sort of summarizing that into something short, they'll have a tendency to write like very long articles with many, many words um instead of like summing it up into into something short and concise and it's sort of like the jupiter Jupiterian principle of being big and expansive um but it has to manifest in the context of Virgo, which is ruled by Mercury and is Mercurial, signifying- yeah yeah and mercury yep. is great and virgo is great about focusing on the details but when you put jupiter in that context it means it focuses on all of the details or it blows mm-hmm. up the details and makes them much much bigger and much more expansive mm-hmm. and that and i yeah so that goes back to
1: the idea that the planet in detriment is subject to the conditions of the contrary planet that rules mm-hmm. the sign that it's in and uh but this this could also be uh, this could be a problem with for someone too, because well, I've spent my life collecting all this data now, what in the heck does it all mean right well <laughs> that that can be a real problem. You could be a master of details and have no idea what any of it means, and so that that can be a problem too
0: right, versus let's say Mercury, and you put it in a sign like Sagittarius or Pisces, let's say which are Let's say away from Pisces, let's say Mercury and Sagittarius, because then otherwise you overlap with fall and exaltation, but you put Mercury in Sagittarius and it's really good at looking at the big picture things and like talking about like the overall philosophy of things and drawing grand sweeping conclusions, but it's not as good as at looking at the small details and it gets sort of um, yeah it's it's the opposite issue from like Jupiter and Virgo, where Jupiter and Virgo is great at collecting many facts. Mercury and Sagittarius is better at looking at the broad picture, but it has a an issue um, when you get into the details Good cor- corrupts
1: corrupts Mercury in a different kind of way
0: yeah, or just it presents a challenge to the basic functioning of the planet because it has to op- operate the opposite of how it's used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you just keep that, that basic meaning in mind and you apply that to all of the signs, um, you, you start getting a much more useful um, usage of, of the concept of detriment as like a descriptive factor that can help you to describe how the planet is operating. And it doesn't necessarily always have to work out as a negative thing. It just depends on how, um, how it's configured, but it just qualifies the functioning of that planet in a certain special way. Mm. Um, And the last thing is just this really brings up how in traditional astrology, there's all these like little concepts like this that have just basic keywords, and it seems almost like too simplistic at first or it almost seems like it's not giving you enough to work with at first. But then when you start stringing them together, you realize that it not only provides you with quite a bit of information, but it also provides you with a very concrete information that's based on very specific astronomical properties, mm-hmm. like you know a planet being opposite to its sign means this, and then when you string it together with this other concept, it modifies it to mean this, and so on and so forth, so that it actually does start becoming not just more complicated and more um complex, but also it still maintains the ability to be very concrete about making specific statements about a person's life mm-hmm. they often packed a lot
1: more into fewer words and if we're living in an age where we like to just skim through lots of words or skim across a lot of words to get a general impression of what someone's saying it's you have to you have to take a different attitude towards them they were packing a lot in there
0: yeah and that's why to me when we read these passages and we see these infrequent but recurring references to detriment in the early Hellenistic and and later medieval tradition as being a concept, um, we have to take those really seriously. And we also see that the later medieval astrologers also understood that, so that when they came across a concept like this, they didn't overlook it or put it aside, but they actually incorporated it into their astrology and considered even those passing references to be a big deal that contained major interpretive principles. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. I forgot to mention um, what complicated this whole situation is that in the Indian tradition, they don't have the concept of detriment. And this is <laughs> one of the things that always complicated things because that presumably then came from as a result of Hellenistic astrology being transmitted to India. They Because the concept wasn't like overtly articulated in the introductory text, they also didn't incorporate it as like a basic concept that you were introduced with domicile exaltation and fall. Um, however, I was talking to Austin Kopik the other night. He was telling me that the concept of detriment still does kind of come up indirectly through the idea of um, planetary friends and enemies so that um, when a planet is in certain signs, Um, the signs that are opposite to a planet's domicile more often than not do tend to be enemies with that planet so that there is Mm -hmm. already an interpretation of an inherent conflict between them. Mm -hmm. So it Mm -hmm. may be that the concept is actually in Indian astrology, but just in an indirect way, just like it Mm -hmm. sort of was in the Hellenistic tradition and and how Rhetorius described it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm, Very interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, um, I think that's that's pretty much it. So, this is a pretty solid two-hour episode. Thank, thanks a lot for joining me today for this. So, some of the quotes that you used were actually derived from material that you're preparing for your course, which you're getting ready to launch before too long here, right? Yeah. Okay. So, what's the deal with that? Where are you at with that at this point?
1: <laughs> well, the deal, is,
0: <laughs> the deal is... The deal is...
1: I'm I am trying very hard as I'm also finishing the great introduction mm-hmm. of Abu Mashar, trying very hard to finish all of the lessons in the uh in the first third of the course. So what people have to understand is that I wrote the course kind of backwards. Mm-hmm. So all of the like part 3 of the course with all of the house based material like that's almost completely done. That's just okay. I have to proofread. Mm-hmm. But the beginning but some of the beginning um Beginning lessons are still in a state of flux, so um, i'm I'm finishing those up. I will start putting together a list of beta testers and putting together um, the system to do that so that hopefully we can start um, start a group of beta testers on part one of the course before the end of the year.
0: okay so that's where I am. Cool. And how far are you from finishing your translation of Abu Mashar's Greater Introduction?
1: The translation's done. I'm doing the hand the hand edits and proofreading right now. So um, if I can keep doing that uh, every day, I think we could have um,
0: an edition in about a month. Wow, that's exciting. Okay. Um, I think everyone will appreciate a more affordable translation of The Greater Introduction than the yeah, three yeah. or $400 one that's out there right now. So thank you for that. And there's one other translation you're working on, and I don't know if it's okay to mention it, but you're working on it with someone else. Any update on where that's at? Or do you want to save that for another announcement? Uh, let's maybe save that
1: for another announcement.
0: Okay, no problem. All right. Well, thank you for this. Um, thanks also to Levant Laszlo for his help with the translation of a lot of these passages that I read from the Hellenistic tradition. He did like a lot of work on that this week, so I just want to give a shout out to him. And I'll put a link to his website, which is horiproject.com, and you can find him on patreon.com slash And I'll be interviewing him next month about some translations he's doing of Porphyry and Antiochus and other Hellenistic authors. Um, and I'll put a link to the handout or the PDF in the description below this episode um, also, thank you to Anthony, of course for you know holding my feet to the fire and um, causing me to go back and relook at some of this to finally answer this question more um, more thoroughly, which I feel like we've done here. but I appreciate that sort of back and forth that sometimes comes when different people um, have different ideas and then you're supposed to like challenge them and that exchange or that tension causes positive developments like this. Cool. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening or watching this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Uh, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks. Bye. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, Arena Tudor, Thomas Miller, Bear River, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marilat, and Kate Pilata as well as the AstroGold astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective personal astrological almanacs available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast was also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting an online astrology conference September 12th and 13th, 2020. You can find out more information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.